there are more who are listening, really, really listening, not just hearing, but listening. So I have hope because of that. I have hope because the response. But I am also deeply aware, profoundly aware, hauntingly aware that the actual work that needs to be done hasn't been done yet. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for a new episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are releasing this episode on May 25th, which marks a year since the death of George Floyd. So we're going to spend some time today talking together and then with Lisa Sharon Harper about what has and has not changed regarding policing in America. Before we get started, we just want to remind you to mark your calendars for our infrastructure series, which will begin in July. We have done so many interviews. We have our contributors working hard. Elise is introducing those contributors to you on our Instagram channel so you can check out who is part of this series as we kind of build anticipation to talk about transportation and water systems and electricity, as well as new infrastructure in terms of broadband and childcare. So lots coming your way in July. We hope that you are as excited about this series as we are. Selling a little? or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, 
which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. So a year ago on May 25th, 2020, George Floyd died after Derek Chauvin, a former Minneapolis police officer, put his knee on George Floyd's neck for over nine minutes. The encounter was filmed and slowly made its way across social media and the Internet until most Americans had seen this horrific encounter and it sparked weeks of protests and a a reckoning in America about racial injustice and policing and our criminal justice system. Here we are a year later. Derek Chauvin has been convicted and his sentencing will be coming up soon, as well as the trial of the other officers on the scene that day. And we are still in the middle of that reckoning. We have lots of state and local changes when it comes to policing federal legislation that's still being negotiated and debated. And we wanted to go through some of that here today and talk about what's happened over this past year. 20 cities have reduced their police budgets in some form. That means across the United States, a total of about $840 million has been subtracted from what we spend on policing. 25 cities have ended contracts with police to operate in their school systems. In Minneapolis, where Mr. Floyd was murdered, police funding has been cut by $8 million. The city reinvested $2 million in community-based violence prevention programs and a new mobile mental health team. All of this is happening as Americans' attitudes continue to be in a, a bit of flux about what the right answers are here. Axios Ipsos polling shows that About 70 percent of people oppose the idea of defunding the police, including a slight majority of black Americans. But then if you ask if if Americans support changes to policing, diverting some police funds to community policing and social services, a majority of respondents endorse that goal. Over the past year, we've also seen crime going up. Now, it's hard to know, you know, what's correlation and what's causation given the pandemic There are lots of extenuating circumstances, including, you know, the increased tension surrounding this racial reckoning. For example, Seattle cut its police budget by almost 20 percent and finished 2020 with its highest homicide rate in decades and increased response times. Just this weekend, we had several shootings in cities across America. I don't think there's a major U.S. city that hasn't experienced some increase in crime. And so that brings a, a total different facet to the conversation because, you know, when crime goes up, people are afraid. I think safety is one of the most basic needs that people expect the government to meet. 
And when there's increased crime, be it, you know, burglaries or homicide, it lends to an atmosphere of fear. And when we are afraid, our public policy suffers. I think it it shortens our time frame and increases our reactivity. It increases conflict between groups who feel like they have to compete for resources or compete for attention. And I think that that, not to mention just the trauma and fallout and the ripple effect across these communities as violence increases to the people who lose loved ones, to the people who lose their lives, to the children affected by violence. So we have this really difficult situation. And I think what's really hard about it is what you're seeing in policing is not just some cut to funding, but a real crisis when it comes to recruiting and retaining police officers. It seems like instead of defunding the police, we've really, you know, demoralized them. And that, to me, increases the crisis-level reactivity. It's sort of the the worst of both worlds. In or, instead of, you know, a, a careful and thoughtful approach to reform or a careful and thoughtful approach to defunding police. If that is your actual goal, we're getting like the worst of both worlds. We're just, you know, creating a crisis in recruitment so that we can't take the time and resources we need to do either reform or a complete reimagining of police the way we want to, especially in the context of an increase in crime. You know, I think it's, I felt so hopeful at this time last year that things were really going to change. And I still see that change. And I still feel that we have made tremendous progress, especially when it just comes to this countrywide sort of community level understanding of race relations and the impact of policing. But it feels like if we're not in the the messy middle of trying to figure out what this looks like on the ground, we're getting awful close. And that part is very, very hard. I appreciate that in talking about the increase in crime and police violence, people are starting to recognize all of the contradictions that are inherent in this topic. Mm -hmm. I was listening to Ezra Klein's podcast with James Foreman Jr., and he talked about how crime both follows and exacerbates inequality. And I think that's a really important point to hover on. There's been lots of reporting about how Black communities feel correctly, both over-policed and under-policed. They do Mm -hmm. not get the benefit of public safety, but they get disproportionately targeted by police. And so there are so many seeming contradictions that are true at once. And I don't really know how to solve this problem. I do fear that some of our best resources on what we could do, especially coming out of this pandemic to make our communities safer, are people who are sitting in prisons right now. When you really spend time and listen to someone who has been incarcerated, especially someone who's been incarcerated for a crime committed out of just a set of awful circumstances and choices, they know a lot about what happens in these communities and what people need to avoid to avoid lives of crime or to avoid that one criminal act that ends up ruining their lives. And I wish that we could get out of this adversarial mode and and start to partner police officers, you know, and expand programs that partner police officers with people who've been incarcerated. I just think we have a lot of knowledge about this in people that we've written off. And I think people that we've written off 
often both want to and are really well positioned to help make communities safer. I think as we look at this complexity, the most important thing we can do is just name it over and over again. I think even the most fearful pro-police, super conservative person, should you find yourself in conversation with them about rising crime rates, can acknowledge that this isn't simply about the presence or lack of presence of policing. Surely to God at this point in 2021, coming off a pandemic and a recession and an incredibly emotional election that continues to have fallout. We can acknowledge nothing else. It's that there's a lot going on here and that we have tried. We have tried doubling down on policing and there is very little evidence that it helps. And in the same way that the increase in crime rate is complicated, the decrease in crime rate is complicated. And I just hope for once and for all, if the death of George Floyd does anything, it lets us abandon this direct causal connection we had used as a narrative for so long that more police, less crime, you know, more crime is because you have too few police. And I hope that we can just release that. I hope if nothing else coming a year off of that horrific video and sort of all the fresh eyes so many people brought to this topic, we can see that, like, there is more to the story. There aren't just good guys and bad guys. And this penal system that's really about punishment is not serving the the community it's supposed to help. And our doubling down on that system has just contributed to its brokenness not made it function more efficiently. And if, if nothing else, I hope that we can, in conversation with each other, as we prioritize within our communities and as we, as we set policies, be honest with ourselves that there is a lot going on, that the situation when you are talking about human beings policing other human beings is fraught and complicated. You know, I think about our own police department when I was a city commissioner and we had a crimes analyst, a, a person, a statistician, a data, data analyst who really poured over the data coming out of our community and how that really helped illuminate things, like helped us abandon narratives that weren't true and helped us see problems with fresh eyes. And I don't think data's just the answer here. I don't think the story of George Floyd and how he affected our country is about data, but I do think that that moment and his death got everyone's attention to at least acknowledge that data or story or narrative or videos or they're all leading us to the same place, which is there are a lot of factors acting on both those being policed and those doing the policing and being honest with the ways that we act on each other and that there is still an enormous amount of connection between those two parties. I just I really, really hope we can continue to see that, because if we move forward into a time where crime increases and we go through the same approach that we used in the 70s and 80s and 90s, that is going to be incredibly disheartening.
There's a lot in what you just said, and I agree with most of it for sure, that it is enormously complex, that the status quo is unsustainable, that it's broken, that it does not prevent crime. We'd be a very, very safe country if we felt that our entire criminal system was working well. At the same time, I think my point of departure is is the kind of more police does not equal less crime because I don't think policing is one thing in America right now. I think there are vast differences across police departments in this country and that that you do see <clears throat> in some places a reduction of police equals an increase in crime. You also see in some places that having more police means more government-backed crime committed against civilians, right? And so I just I don't think it's I don't think it's one thing, and that's why I kind of struggle with where we are in the in the conversation. You know, we have federal legislation being negotiated right now. Representative Karen Bass, Senator Cory Booker, Senator Tim Scott are kind of leaders in this negotiation. They express optimism. President Biden had wanted to get federal legislation done by May 25th. That's not going to happen. But these three still express a lot of optimism that something will happen. And something happening at the federal level is probably important and also just not even a drop in the bucket of what is needed because policing is so localized and because different departments approach it in so many different ways. What I think we really need to gather around as a principle is that a purely punitive approach to policing and a purely punitive approach to the criminal legal system doesn't work. And so... As we imagine what the future could be jurisdiction by jurisdiction, you might have some communities where the police become really a harm reduction force. Or you might have some communities where the police are really there as in in that kind of community policing sense. We build relationships within the community. We have a we have a beat on what's going on. We're able to draw in appropriate resources where we see something going wrong. I just don't think there's one answer to all of this. As much as we would all love to have a policy that passes and we can all say, yes, this is it, and we're going to turn a switch and move from a system that was really flawed to a system that more people can see working well, I just I don't think that's going to happen because it is so uh, diverse across the United States and and needs to be. No, I definitely don't think it's one thing. That's that sort of, you know, I hope that's what we can abandon is the idea that it's there's like a direct correlation either way, because why human beings commit crime or don't commit crime is enormously complex and has way more factors acting on it than the presence of the or absence of the police in their community. I do wonder as we look at this, especially when it comes to recruitment and retention of police officers, if we need to reorganize and rename what's happening. I do wonder if the idea of police, and I mean it's like specifically even the word police, is, is injured beyond repair. If we find new words and new description depending on the community's needs, with mobile mental health units or with investigators or with, you know, I don't know, public safety officers. I, there's just and I know that it seems silly to just talk about what we call things. But I mean, I think that's something else we spent a lot of time talking about over the last year. And there's just a part of me that thinks like over the, you know, several hundred years of history in our country with police, particularly in some communities, like, is there too much injury? Is there too much trauma 
and we need to, you know, wipe the slate clean as far as like what we call people, how they're dressed, how they function, and really reinvent public safety. Because it's hard for me to envision a time post-George Floyd in some parts of the country where the word police, that's something people want to be, that's something people trust. I just think that's that's going to be almost impossible in certain parts of our country. I just think there's something when it comes to the video of George Floyd's death that we can't unsee. And in the same way, I th- you know, I think about my own trauma surrounding school violence. Like school will never be a 100% safe place to me ever again. Now, just calling the building something different, would that change it for me? No, of course not. But some, in some ways, I think the reinvention of school we've seen over the past year with virtual schooling and being at home, it did, it did, it changed for some people and some people felt enormously safe and they got to see it with fresh eyes. That's not true for everybody, but, you know, I just, I wonder if part of what we need to reflect on a year later is what we can't get back in many communities across the country when it comes to the police. I think that may be right. And I I do think as we talk about recruitment and retention of police officers, that thinking about what the job is and who is best positioned to do it and what kind of traits we're looking for in people is enormously important. This brings to mind for me the sort of political sphere controversy over Ted Cruz's tweet comparing a Russian army ad to a U.S. Army ad. I saw that. The U.S. Army ad talked about U.S. Army Corporal Emma Malone Lord. And Senator Cruz compared that ad, which uplifted Army Corporal Malone Lord and her raising by a lesbian couple in San Francisco and, and lots of just kind of other aspects of her that showcase diversity and and showcase the the many people who have a role to play in the United States military. He contrasted that with this very violent and aggressive Russian ad. And he praised the Russian ad and said, maybe having a woke military isn't the best thing for us. And, and I just was watching his tweets about this thinking, like, imagine thinking that in 2021, a better depiction of a soldier is a violent aggressor than someone who really fulfills the U.S. military's mission, which in so many ways has become more oriented to humanitarian aid. And what the military does overseas is still a mix of things, for sure. We, we still do violence. We still do aggression. We still do war. But we also do a lot of humanitarian work, a lot of infrastructure creation for other countries, a lot of just legal work across the globe. And the military's celebration of that, willingness to talk about it, willingness to showcase people like Corporal Malone Lord has not changed overnight and is certainly not put us all the way in a new space. Um, we know that there are there are major problems, especially with the way that sexual violence occurs in the military and extremist ideology grows in the military. So we're not all the way there. But we've seen this transition, right? And the transition continues. And it is not helped along by self-serving senators making fun of it. And so if 
And I bring this up just to say, if we want to have a serious conversation about policing in the United States, about public safety in the United States, it is not helped along by self-serving people making fun of changing our language or rolling their eyes about talking about mental health efforts and community policing and those kinds of things. Like we just, I think there is a way to be a person who knows, loves, cares about police officers and, and who is deeply committed to sitting down and saying something is very wrong here and it cannot stand. And I'm willing, especially as we think about the fact that a year has passed since George Floyd died and we still get a new name every couple of weeks of someone who's been killed by a police officer to say enough of the snarkiness about this and enough of the culture wars. This is a topic that affects everyone, especially as crime rates are going up. I thought what was particularly nasty about that is that the ad was based on a real person. Like, what's wrong with you? (sighs) To go after an ad that features a real human being. But, I mean, we all know what's wrong with Ted Cruz. I think you're right. And what I would say to someone who feels very defensive of the police or just someone who was affected by the video of George Floyd's death and who feels like Derek Chauvin should be in prison— but who is very turned off by phrases like defund the police and feels like that's a radical notion, that recruitment and retention of police officers is doing that work in the worst possible way. I really believe that. I think that, you know, just really increases the the tension and the conflict and the scarcity mindset. If you care about public safety and you don't think there's anything wrong with policing, well, it doesn't really matter if they can't recruit police officers. If you think everything's perfect, but they can't recruit police officers, then that's still a problem. Or retain police officers, and they're like this mass exodus. To me, that that's something that that particular issue should be something that we should all see as like, okay, well, this is a red flag, and this is reaching a crisis level in which we're not going to have options to do good policy, especially in the face of rising crime rates, for the whole breadth of diversity when it comes to communities across the country, either, you know, communities that feel they're both over-policed and under-policed, communities that love their policing, like no matter where you fall on that spectrum in America, and it is a broad spectrum. This is an issue in my community. It was an issue when I was a commissioner in 2016. The recruitment of police officers was an issue then. And so we have a problem with this system on many, many levels. And the communities who feel it most profoundly, instead of making fun of them, instead of being snarky or, or ignoring them or treating people like they're radical activists, I suggest we do some listening because they're naming something that is affecting every police department in this country. And that's what that recruitment and retention statistic shows us. Before we continue this conversation, we want to take a, a second for a moment of hope. Uh, ceasefire has been agreed to by Hamas and the Israeli government. The Egyptian government did a lot to help make this happen in terms of brokering an agreement with Hamas to stop firing on Tel Aviv. There have been reports of just dozens of phone calls between White House officials, including President Biden, with officials in the Israeli government. Uh, The strategy of quiet diplomacy seems to have been really effective here in calming this violence. Now, Calming the violence does not solve the underlying issues, and there is 
enormous frustration. There is devastation from the violence. There is generational devastation from the violence that has just unfolded. So all is not well, but for the moment, there is there is peace, at least a, a lack of, of bombs going off. And for that, I feel really grateful. Next up, we're going to share a conversation we had with Lisa Sharon Harper. Lisa joined us last year after the murder of Mr. Floyd for what became one of really one of our most downloaded conversations of the year. And at the time, she talked us through imagining a world without traditional policing as we know it. And we invited her back today to really continue that conversation, reflect on the past year, and consider what that future might look like. Lisa is an author, an activist, a speaker, and founder of Freedom Road, which is a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation. She has been named among the most powerful women religious leaders and is a prominent voice in progressive Christian circles. We so appreciate her work and know that you will be challenged and encouraged by this conversation, whether you're a Christian, a practice of different faith, or no faith at all. So here's Lisa Sharon Harper. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon-priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon-grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and Jean each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for spending time with us again. I talked to you exactly one year ago. Wow. Oh, my gosh. When it's Mr. George Floyd exactly. was yes. killed. It has been one year. Wow. And I'm so glad to have you back mm-hmm. as we honor that mm-hmm. date and what we all saw and learned from it and grieve mm-hmm. that date. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in talking with you today about where you think we are one year later. Wow. What is giving you hope? What is still to be done, what is concerning to you in, in terms of what we have or haven't learned. So I'll just start with a really broad question. As you think about it being a year from when Mr. Floyd was murdered, how does that sit with you? Wow. Well, I think that one year ago, before George Floyd was murdered, we already had a string of murders of Black people in their homes while jogging, you know, uh, someone who had the cops called on him in Central Park for telling a white woman to to leash her dog, and she accused him of attacking her. This was all before the uprisings. And I think that what happened in the midst of the uprisings, and this is, I've said this a few times, actually, in various contexts, is I believe it was a time of revelation, mm-hmm. and that for people of European descent in America— I don't know why, but for some reason, more people of European descent could see in a way that they couldn't see after and because of George George Floyd. I think that the uprising had a lot to do with it. I think that, honestly, I think seeing 123 cities burn at one time literally scared the bejesus out of white people. And that's when they began to understand how serious Mm -hmm. this is. Because it's not even just that George Floyd died. Because he died, and at that point when he died, you know, there was marching in the street in Minneapolis. But it was after 123 cities had coordinated, it felt like a coordinated, like, we ain't taking this no more kind of moment. So I think that there's more truth being spoken, more truthfully, and more people of European descent and and others, actually, who have bought into who have internalized oppression and bought into the European worldview, there are more who are listening, really, really listening, not just hearing, but listening. So I have hope because of that. I have hope because the response of particularly white women after the work that we did last fall in particular, last really last June, all the way through the fall, that more white women understand that it's not enough to feel bad, that they actually have to follow the lead in action of people of color. I have hope because of that. But I am also deeply aware, profoundly aware, hauntingly aware 
that the actual work that needs to be done hasn't been done yet. The actual work of reforming our public safety system, which we don't have. We don't have a public safety mm-hmm. system. We have a penal system. And the penal system is really good at penalizing people for things that probably should not be penalized. It should be cared for. Just yesterday, it was reported that in Louisiana, two years ago, a man, 49-year-old barber by the name of Ronald Green. Ronald Green was driving, and we do not know how he came into confrontation with these cops, but it seems like he was trying to evade them, trying to trying not to be stopped by them, by them probably because he knew what would happen. And he was scared. He told them, I, I, I was scared. I'm sorry. I was scared. And he was completely compliant when they stopped. You could see it now from the body camera video that was released yesterday. But yet they tased him again and again and again and again. So much so that blood came from his body. They punched him after that. They pulled him out of the car, put him face down on the ground. They hogtied him. And then his limp body they dragged to their car, face down on the gravel. These are police officers. These are people who are charged with protecting and serving. And they loaded his limp body into the back of their car and dropped him off at the hospital and said he got into an accident. He, he hit a tree. But the, the coroner, whose name is an African name, he said this doesn't add up because there were two taser talons mm. in the back of his prongs in the back of his back. He said, this doesn't add up. It wasn't a tree crash that killed this man. And the video was held by the Louisiana precinct for two years and not shown. This man's body was buried. And the story was buried Mm -hmm. until yesterday when the AP released the video. We're seeing what happened then. And we're seeing what can continue to happen because it hasn't been dismantled yet. Mm -hmm. Those people are still there. The cop who um, is believed to have killed Ronald Green is dead. I think he died, ironically, in a car crash. But not before it was revealed that he had done this to other Black men in the same area. So I... I don't know if I have hope. I have hope because God is. Mm. But I am also in awe of how behemoth our our task is. I just think we have to end it. We have to end. We have to end policing. And I know, I know people are like, what? But we have to end it. And we have to build public safety, which is a whole different thing. Policing is about domination. And policing in America has been about white domination of non-white bodies. That's what policing has been about from 1705. Public safety is about more light on streets. Public safety is about better schools, 
funding schools. Public safety is about ending poverty, really, literally ending poverty, and also creating more equity in pay because where there is inequity, violence follows. So public safety is a full orb. It's about um, more access to mental health care. It's about trauma-informed health care, trauma-informed education, trauma-informed uh, housing, trauma-informed all of it, because we are traumatized people, people of color in the United States. And I think white folk are too. So Bob Zellner from SNCC says that he has a theory. It's called the, the shriveled heart theory. Mm-hmm that people of European descent, especially in the South, had two and a half centuries of interacting with people of African descent in the same way that they interact with their hogs that they were raising, in the same way that they interact with their chickens, um, with their cows. They go out and kill a chicken. You have to wring its neck. You got to chop its head off. You go kill a pig that you've been raising because the pig exists for your, your well-being. Well, they existed alongside people of African descent in exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. They were thought of as mules, things, tools for the betterment of white bodies. But when those tools rebelled, those tools were put to, they were broken they were put to rest. And when you do that, your heart has to harden. It has to shrivel. It has to become hard. You can't have a heart of flesh. And Bob Zellner's theory is that the reason why we have so much violence that comes out of the South and out of Southerners and people of Southern descent, white Southern descent, is because that hardened heart has been passed down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, some people would call it moral injury. There's been an injury to the moral compass of of European Americans and others like Resma Menachem and my grandmother's hands would look and say white bodies have experienced some kind of trauma as well. The trauma of encountering that evil. And also, it's not always focused on people of color within those white households where white men exact that kind of violence on black bodies and brown bodies, eventually it seeps to the women and those families and the children. Mm-hmm. And so it does, it's, not, it's not contained. So in that way, you have a lot of trauma, I think, actually, that is usually unspoken and hidden in white families. It's not always the case. Certainly there are white families that haven't experienced that. But usually those white families live at the very top, mm. at the very top of the food chain. I think that hardened heart is a really good way to think about what I want to ask you next, which is what we've been talking a lot about here, particularly when it comes to white people being white women ourselves is integration. So the lessons that we learned, and I think there was a real, what we do in America and what we do in, in upper middle class highly educated places, which we is we tried to intellectualize it, right? We're going to mm-hmm. read all the books, all the approved books that came out last summer that sold out, happy for them to sell out. But, you know, we're going to read the, or we're mm-hmm. going to buy those books at least and put them on our bookshelf, right? right? 
Right. And yes. we're going to, whether you read it, it's another right. question. And uh, we're yeah. going <laughs> to uh, buy the books and we're going to, maybe we're going to read them. We're going to join the book club. We're going to police each other's language. We're going to do all those intellectual tasks. And, you know, what I'm thinking about what we're both and what we've both been talking about a lot coming up on this really, really important anniversary is, well, how do we integrate it? Because a lot of this is hard work. How do we make sure Mm -hmm. we're not just doing the homework and not Mm -hmm. integrating what we're learning into a full soul experience so that we can continue on that behemoth task and not think, well, we've read the books and we follow the right accounts and we use the right words and then we're done. I don't think it's possible, actually, for people to move forward from the learning. Everybody got the good books. That's good. Keep learning. Keep reading. That's good. But our society will not change until your feet move. Mm. And I'm not just talking about marching. I'm talking about those of you who have businesses. I'm talking about getting some consulting about how to make your business an anti-racist business. And you might be sitting there, you know, clutching your pearls right now going, I'm not a racist. My business is not racist. What are you talking about? Well, I, my my word to you is, if you have not done the work to examine, to really examine, to to interrogate every system within how things are done within your business, from how you choose your customer, to how you choose your suppliers, to how you pay your workers, to where you go to get your workers, to the gap between the CEO pay and, and, the, and the lowest paid worker in your, if you have not done the interrogative work, then how can you say it's anti-racist? You can't. Because racism is not about, it's not about what you think. Racism is about what you do. Mm-hmm. Racism is about the systems and structures that make up how we live together. That's what racism is. That's how white supremacy replicates itself, secures itself, protects itself, is through the way things are done. You could be the most well-meaning white woman, white man in the world. But if you have a business that is not paying your workers well, then you do not have an anti-racist business. If you have a business that only has suppliers that are coming from one um, ethnic community, uh, particularly white folk, you are not an anti-racist business. You might have a call, right? Like to white women. I get that. I understand that. And I, that's not a racist thing, especially if you're leveraging that call to help your white women move forward in their doing and their work. This is your work. What is their work, mm-hmm. Right. I, I, I understand that. If you are not working actively, businessmen, pastors, deacons, church mothers, if you are not actively working to repair the housing segregation in your neighborhood, in your community, the food segregation, the, the food, the reality of food deserts in your community, the fact that while you might enjoy a really great Costco in your area, the workers at that Costco better be being paid well. And actually I have to say that I know of some Costcos that actually have, that have welcomed labor unions into the Costco. And so they are being paid well. But is your Walmart unionized? Why does that matter? 
Well, it's because unions give workers the ability to negotiate their pay. That's the thing. It's not just about what book you read. Forget your books. I mean, really, even mine. <laughs> forget, forget the books. Even my book, forget it. If you read my book and then go vote in your local elections, your state elections, and your um, national elections for candidates that are anti-union and also uh, for protecting the, the practices of redlining and gerrymandering and voter suppression, if you, are, if you read my book and then you go do that, you have done nothing. You've done what they call performative justice. You've performed being a just person. You haven't been a just person. And here's the thing. Jesus said at the end of his life, Matthew 25, there will be a day. There will be a day when we all have to answer for how did we treat the least of these? And he was not talking about individuals in that passage. When Jesus said the righteous will say, when did we do this for you, O son of man? And he says, truly, I tell you, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. That word righteous, there's only one way that you can translate that word. It means ones of equitable action Mm. and character. In other words, ones that level the playing field. Those are the righteous ones. I've been wanting to ask you about this since I read a piece in The Dispatch by David French, and he was pointing out that in the Democratic Party right now, in the sort of, you know, I I think the the strongest, obviously the strongest party on anti-racist work and the strongest party on police, we only have two choices, so it's easy to rise to the top. But in that party, you have an, an alliance of the most religious groups in the country and the least religious groups in the country. Now, you know, I break the mold because I am a white, highly educated Democratic voter who also happens to go to church, which is pretty rare. Mm -hmm. You know, and then you Mm -hmm. also have, I think, this new really interesting movement with Black Lives Matter, which isn't rooted in necessarily a religious tradition in the way that we've seen in the past history. And but then you also have black and brown voters, which are this incredibly important base of the Democratic Party that are also some of the most highly religious groups that go to church the most often that, you know, are founded, like have strong foundations Mm -hmm. and religious backgrounds. And I wonder like how you think about that, how you think about this allegiance. You know, I think about how often in, you know, sort of certain liberal circles, it'll be like, you know, well, you need to just like you, like you said, like fits, you know, sit at the, sit at the feet of certain people. And I just want to be like, well, some of those people are going to tell you to go to church. So how are you going to feel about that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like I, <laughs> and I think about, I think uh-huh. about that sort of intersection because we have people, you know, the, the church attendance yeah. falling off and you have this allegiance between these two groups as a person that sort of breaks the mold in some respects, it's really fascinating to me. And I've, I've wanted to, to get your thoughts on that for so long. Oh, well, thanks for asking that. Actually, I mean, I, I have really strong thoughts about this. I, I, think that, I think that people of European descent are streaming away from white churches across the, there's no, there are no white churches that are growing mm. right now. I mean, there are individuals, I'm sure, but there are no white denominations or streams of the church that are growing. All of the, all of the growth is happening among churches of color, especially immigrant churches, mm-hmm. actually. 
And that growth is not only happening by people of color. White people are streaming to people, to churches of color, actually. And I, and that's something I've been actually advocating for a while. And the reason for that is because in the scripture itself, the entire Bible was written by people who were oppressed or under threat of oppression, including David and Solomon. Yes, they were kings. If you've listened to me for any minute of time, you've heard me say this. They were kings of a dinky little kingdom that kept getting sacked. <laughs> they were not kings of an empire. They were not emperors. Right. And, and, and in fact, they kept getting sacked by empires. You can name the empires, and by naming them, you kind of name history, like the history of empires. And so you have this, this, this faith, this faith stream, this religion called Christianity that is actually a brown, oppressed, colonized religion that has been co-opted and controlled by white empire, which is exactly the thing that killed Jesus. It was white supremacist Rome that killed Jesus, brown Jesus. You understand that? So I think that literally in the aftermath of George Floyd, that's one of the things, that's one of the scales that came off the eyes of people of European descent was our faith is not working. Our faith has nothing to say to this. Mm. We don't know what to say to this. It, there, there is nothing in our rubric to answer to this. And yet we are the ones doing it. Like we are the ones who actually are voting for the people who are putting these structures and systems in place. And so how could this be? How could my faith have led us to this place? So I think that a lot of people of European descent are streaming out of those churches now because they have only been introduced to and only known white Jesus, white imperial Jesus. You know, the one with the purple robe and mm -hmm. the fake crown and hold the lamb. <laughs> but I, 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 nothing about nothing against the lamb. But you know what I mean? Like, but that, that's the picture. That's the picture. And he looks like he's from Sweden, right? Because he was actually, literally, he was painted by a Swedish man who said, oh, he must look like me. And so that's the Jesus that most white people in the world know. But it's not Jesus. So... It's actually quite ironic. So what happens is you have this backlash, and I've experienced it even in my consulting work. You have this backlash against religion, all religion. You know, you have people who are, who are white, very well-meaning, liberal. And by liberal, what I mean is, you know, woke, right? And, um, and so they're all like, you know, we, we need equality and no, no religion here, there, or anywhere because they think of a religion as being oppressive, which it has been in their experience. The religion they've been a part of has been used to oppress, but it's not, it's not true religion. It's not, it's not actual Jesus. Meanwhile, black people in those same spaces, I cannot even tell you how amazed I was during the Biden um, run for the presidency. The Democratic Party, led by, by the, the Democratic chair, decided to have, hold prayer meetings mm. online, on Zoom prayer meetings. I think it was like once a week for like the last month, like all of October, um, going up uh, to election day. And even on election night, like we were, we prayed. And I was invited to help lead prayer, but I, I, they didn't need me. Do you know that most of the people who were on that call, who were Christian, were people of color, and they were, I mean, 
Oh, Jesus. Hallelujah. God, you will help us. Come save us, God. Like it was all of that. And a bag. Of, it was like a bag of chips. It was like, it was, inc- it was amazing to see the level of faith streaming from the Democratic Party. Mm. I was like, wow, this is not, this is not what's advertised. This is not the, the face that is put out there for the Democratic Party. Instead, what's put out there is this, you know, we're, we are the professionals. We, we, um, we're, we are the woke professionals and we're going to do this in a woke professional kind of way. And, but you know, the people, the people of color in the democratic party are also deeply people of faith, almost all of them. So the very first group, the very first group that Kamala Harris went to after, after she was, after they were elected to think were pastors she said, I have to thank the pastors and I have to also ask for your blessing. I have to ask for you to pray for me, to please pray for me, right? So she immediately went to people of faith. This is not something that happens when white candidates win. Oh, no, I because they the, don't, pa- the, the picture with Donald Trump and them all laying their hands on him. Oh, oh, forget it. I was traumatized by that picture. No, that's right. Actually, forgive me. When white liberals win, when white, that's what I mean, when white when white folk, white woke people win, because they are thinking of Christianity as a white person's religion. And so they think they have to distance themselves from it. But here's the thing. You cannot get, and not just, not just Christianity, but spirituality, religion. You cannot live, you cannot survive oppression without something greater than yourself to hold on to, to have hope in. You just can't. So the Democratic Party, if it is a party of white people working for black people and, and Latino people, then they might, they might think that excising faith from that party is a good idea because faith got us the religious right. But that is not the experience of people of color. People of color have always, always been the tip of the spear of national and international reform, catalyzed by and held by and strengthened by our faith. So you take our faith away and you take away our superpower. Mm. You take our faith away and you take away the very thing that got us there. Well, what do you make of the fact that Black Lives Matter is not as linked to the religious foundation as like past civil rights movements? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think two things. One is that the black church as never, never, never in the history of the black church has there ever been more than 30% of the black church that has actually engaged in freedom struggle? 30%. Never was there more than 30% of the black church that ever engaged in the civil rights movement. And that is largely because of two things. One, because you have one stream of the black church that actually developed inside of white church denominations. And so there's a lot of, there's some internal oppression there. But then you have the other, other streams of the black church they were really just saying, don't rock the boat. We don't, we don't, mm-hmm. like they were scared. So they didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to bring down 
hell on, on their, on their people, right? So they, they were scared. As a result though, now you're two generations from, two, three generations from the civil rights movement. You have young people who are completely unchurched on the street because they have lost all faith that the church even cares about their lives because the church has not been involved, has not been, has not been there for them. And as a result, they are growing up without the church and they're growing up on the street. But to say that because they're not going to church means they don't have spirituality would be a mistake. And the truth is that, and I've seen it everywhere. I've seen it in Ferguson. I saw it in Baltimore. I've seen it. um, I I saw it in, in Charlottesville. I've seen it. That actually, and Tracy Blackman said it best when we were in Ferguson back in those in 2014, she said, you know, I used to think that the, that the young people were like without, without God, without religion, without faith, but that's not true. They are just holding church on the street. Mm. They are actually practicing a very deep kind of a faith. And actually, I've come to understand that this is the pinnacle, the most radical expression of our faith in this world is the direct confrontation against the powers that are dead set on crushing the image of God on mm-hmm. earth. That is, that is at the heart. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Like that's, that is the most radical expression of the gospel, of the good news that Jesus came to confront the kingdoms of men that were dead set against crushing the image of God on earth, the kingdom of God in confrontation with the kingdoms of men. Well, nowhere does that happen in more pure form than in protest. Mm. Nowhere does that happen in more pure form than when our young people are marching and crying out Black Lives Matter to a line of police officers that are hitting their batons, you know, threatening to beat down the image of God in them. And so I think... In the, in the civil rights era, it made sense for the church to lead that movement because in that era, the issue of, of white supremacy was being felt in equal measure by the entire community, the entire black community. It literally, 59% of us were poor, living underneath the, the poverty line. You had uh, us being funneled into only a few different job markets that we could actually have, we could, we could be a part of in the South. We could either work in as housemaids or we could work in the field. Those were the only two jobs, kinds of jobs that were available to us uh, by law in South Carolina and possibly, and I believe in other states as well. And so if that's the case, everybody's feeling it. And what better institution than to hold that movement? The church, because it, it holds a cross section of the whole community. But in the case of today, the clearest manifestation of the hierarchies of human belonging that are still rife within our our world, the place where it comes up to play, where we can all see it, is in the police. Mm. It's in police, in the question of police brutality. And who is on the tip of that spear? Who is getting the brunt of that oppression? Young people who are on the street. So of course they would lead. But if you ever, if you ever attend a Black Lives Matter meeting, or if you were there for 
the movement for Black Lives, for, for, for when they came together in 2000, I believe it was 2015, to begin to vision for what's the vision that we're working toward, you would know this is a deeply, deeply spiritual movement that actually is in partnership, in collaboration, in coordination, in coalition with clergy who are chaplains to the movement, and they are also foot soldiers in the movement. You mentioned calling a few minutes ago, and if your calling is to speak with white women, as an example. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, as we think about how to integrate the learnings of the last year, I think finding our calling is a really big part of that because we can't all do all the yeah. things. And yeah. I wonder if you come from, if you're if you're speaking to our audience and we have people of many different faiths, uh, no faith, lots of different places on their, their journeys and deciding mm-hmm. what makes a good life. So if calling mm-hmm. is not something that has been a part of your life experience, how would you suggest people start to discern that calling? Yeah. Well, another word for calling is vocation. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's what were you created to do in the world? What does flourishing look like for you? But I think in our, in our white Western mindset, we think of flourishing as an individual mm-hmm. thing. And um, we think of, well, I, my flourishing is, my flourishing is, now this is, of course, fictional. My flourishing is to go and become a great surfboarder, right? Like I'm a great surfer, surfboarder, I'm a surfer, <laughs> right? So I'm going to, I'm going to become a great surfer. Um, anybody looking at me would know I'm not a great surfer. I've never <laughs> even surfed in one day in my life, never once. Um, but that's my calling in life. Nothing against surfers, right? But just to say, if you see that as your calling, then you will work to become the best surfer you possibly can, period. But if you see your calling in life to help the flourishing of all and your talent is surfing, then you will leverage your talent toward the flourishing of all. So you will surf in spaces that promote that. You will become an app, like you will only choose ads for products that actually have that as explicitly one of their values. You will help promote the work of candidates and artists that are also working toward that. Do you see the difference? So if you see yourself as an individual and you know what I do is what I do and, and it's so that I can have my nice house and my two cars and you know and my backyard pool. Like that's what flourishing looks like to me and I'm working toward that. All right. Well, you've bought into a lie because if that is your idea of flourishing, I'll tell you what else you will get. You will also get inequity in your society if you're not working towards equity. And inequity will cause greater amounts of violence in your society, which actually will also mean that you will have to increase the amount of security that you have around your house. And the level of anxiety that you have, you go to bed with every night will increase. And the likelihood of there being violence in your life will increase because You have not worked toward equity. You have not worked toward a just society, one where everybody has enough. Now, does that mean, does that mean that you can't do what you want to do and and flourish at it and do well? No, it just means that the way that you do it has to be in a just way. It has to be in a way 
that fans the flame of the image of God in all. You know, it's impossible to detach the murder of George Floyd from COVID, right? And oh, I think what exactly. I what I hope happened is this sense, and I think part of the the reckoning and the realization was we were living in this moment where you could not deny that we are all connected and that any individual pursuit is never an individual pursuit and it always affects the whole, that there is a whole and that, and I think that the visceral nature of the video and, and the way he called out and the pain and suffering was impossible to deny the universality Mm -hmm. of that suffering. It just was impossible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I hope that we're coming towards a more, a more collective moment where the, where you exactly what you just articulated. I mean, I think that flourishing that individual pursuit is not flourishing of the whole and you cannot ever reach that flourishing for yourself. If the whole is suffering. I mean, that's what, what, like, that's what we learned, right? That's particularly what we learned in COVID. Like it doesn't matter how great you're doing. If the whole is suffering because it's going to, it's going to come knocking on your door eventually. I think that there's something that we have to acknowledge in our current world, a way that our world is different than it was even just five years Mm -hmm. ago. That five years ago, six years ago, pre-Donald Trump, it was a common understanding that we have two parties. They both equally love democracy. They're just trying to do it differently, right? that the Republicans have one strategy for flourishing, for the America's flourishing, and Democrats have another strategy for America's flourishing. But both, it was given. It was, it was a, a ground, foundational assumption that both parties are equally legitimately for America and Americans, mm-hmm. all Americans. Now, obviously, I think that we can go back in history And we can see that that's not actually true. And I think with the parties, you know, it's back to that same thing. It's instead of taking a very individualized vision or approach um, where you're just a voter or you don't care about politics or you don't engage a lot, realizing that actually two flourishing parties are a part of the flourishing of the whole. And completely broken party, even as a Democrat, I have big concerns of (laughs) Oh my God. Very yes. concerned. Yes. Very concerned because we need both parties. We need two parties. We do. Because you look, it's not we like do. cities that have been or states that have been fully democratic for generations have no problems. That's not true either, well, right? Like that, you yeah, know, that it, when there's a monopoly, this belief that like one party has a monopoly on what's right, that's not a recipe for flourishing either. No, it's not. It really isn't. Um Yeah, I I agree with that. I love, you know, a conversation that goes from integration to flourishing, because I think that that is something that we cannot talk enough about, particularly when it surrounds, you know, the events of last summer and the death of George Floyd and that reminding ourselves that this is a journey, not a destination, and that it is a steep hill that we are climbing, but we're climbing it together and not through our sort of individual, you know, my intellectualization, but this connection of our hearts and our souls. And so thank you. Thank you so much for leading us through this conversation, Lisa. We can't thank you enough. Thank you. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. 
I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Well, it's summer here. I know you have a few more days of school, but we're done. So we're working on our our summer schedule. Now, I am what I like to proudly claim as a mean mother. I register for my kids for camps, whether they want to go or not. I make them read every day, write every day, and do math every day on Khan Academy. And my middle child is just an open revolt. Uh, He says, I am ruining summer. 
because I'm making him do 15 to 20 minutes of Khan Academy every day. It's not even going to be every day. That's what's so ridiculous. It's not like we actually stick to the every day. If we do two to three times a week, I'm like, we did it. It's a success. But Lord in heaven, you would think that I have hung this child up by his toes and I'm leaving him there for days on end. He is just devastated by this this development, even though this is what we do every summer. Well, we are quite different in many things. And my approach to summer this year is quite different from yours. I have asked Jane Silvers about at least 15 summer camps. She is not interested at all. She just wants to be at home. She wants to play outside with her friends. She wants to swim. She wants to go kayaking. She wants to sleep in. And I've just decided, fine, that's what we're going to do this summer. It was a hard school year. I'm hoping that when they go back to school in the fall, things are going to be pretty normal. I think fifth grade is going to be challenging for her. And so I'm going to let her rest. And we don't have requirements about math in particular. We do read. I mean, they just like to read. So that's not a hard one. I I want them to read every day, but I don't have to make that a thing for them to do it. The screen time battle will rage this summer, I am certain. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I have let them have more screen time, like every other parent, I think, in the United States over the past year than they've ever had before. And I am finding now that they just have a reflex. They wake up thinking about, I want to play Nintendo, you know, and they they wait all day. Can we play our Switches now? And so trying to find the right balance of that is going to be a challenge, I think, for us. But I am going to ease off a little bit. Jane is on the academic team at our elementary school, which um, Chad coaches and I coach parts of it. And that makes her kind of want to occasionally like practice quick recall questions. And we do some math that way. And we try to just incorporate a lot of like, you know, we try to find those teachable moments, as I know that you do, too, and kind of keep them in in a learning mode all the time. But I don't have like a prescription for this is what I need you doing most days. I mean, the issue with my kids is if I ask them if they want to do something, the answer is no. It's just their reflex. Like, so I don't really feel like it's an honest preference because it doesn't matter what I ask them. The answer is no, unless it is play video games. And so, and I told them that. I'm like, the the problem is like, you would never do this stuff if I didn't make you. They always have a good time when they go. They always like make new friends and learn new things. But if I ask them, do you want to do this, especially Amos, the answer is no. And also, I mean, we have a job to do. I cannot have the three children here all the time while we're trying to record. That does that's not that makes me you you just think you've seen me, mommy, until the disruption to my work comes. Um, and so like, you know, we're obviously we're going on vacation. We've got lots of like fun stuff built in, and also that like the, we're just doing the Khan Academy has like a getting ready for such and such grade. And so they each took the, like, little quizzes, the course challenge quizzes, and they're already, like, 30 to 40 percent through. So I was like, whatever, you'll be done with this in, like, two to three weeks. It's not even, like, that big of an issue. And I cut the screen time way back because it's, like, same thing. Like, I mean, we we kept our screen rules pretty tight, except for they were using—they were also on the screen for school. And so I've dialed that back a little bit as well, which, you know, went over like a lead balloon. But— I think so. I think the summer camp thing, too, for me is, if I'm being honest, is like it's just a part of childhood I missed out on because I went to see my dad in California every summer. So I never really got to do any summer camps. I was like super jealous. And I always felt part of this like idyllic childhood. I never got to experience. Not that I didn't have idyllic experiences in California. I totally did. It was amazing. I got to see like the entire West Coast. But 
the camp part, I think is just such a good. Now we don't we're not doing any overnight camps this year because the ones we usually do got canceled because of COVID. But just like going into new places and meeting new friends and kind of exploring their independence and giving mom a break. We have and we have really good options around here. I'm really excited. Griffin's doing a bike camp. Our local bike store runs where they like take them around town on their bikes, which is like best of both worlds because I trust these people so totally and completely with safety and like he gets to learn that and also gets to like go really way further on his bike than I would ever let him go but yeah that's the it's just the Khan Academy man like they're just you gonna make us do math I'm like yeah because I that's what happened to me I would just forget like I can do it but man that summer loss over those like I mean we're talking at least two full months it's intense I would get back and I'd be like I don't remember any of this I'm trying to do the teachers a solitude because they're going to be dealing with people. I mean, I just I try not to think too hard about like the spectrum they're going to be facing next year in the classroom between kids who like didn't do anything and still got passed through or the people held back or the people who did. It's going to be a lot. God bless them. Ellen is a yes to everything. So I don't have that perpetual no problem with Ellen. Ellen wishes there were more options for her. She would do all of them. She's very (laughs) enthusiastic. She's going to go to drama camp, which seems superfluous for her, but we're going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) It's Jane that doesn't want to do anything. And Jane usually does. Mm -hmm. She is more usually more enthusiastic. I'm trying to just um, with her. I think my biggest goal with her right now is to build a lot of trust as we enter into her tween years. And so if her ask of me right now is to just let her kind of be lazy this summer and that builds some trust between us that you can tell me what's really going on with you and what you need, I'm willing to do it. That's probably just for a season, right? But for this season mm-hmm. with her, I just I the the shift in her age feels so palpable to me that it seems important to listen to her on this, so I'm going to. And I do in thinking about teachers and what's going to be walking back into the classroom in the fall, which I I think a lot about too. With my kids, I worry not at all about the academic catch up. I'm just trying to think about how do I send the happiest most emotionally grounded, secure children back to school that I can in the fall, because I I think there will be a lot swirling around them. And so letting them rest up a little bit this summer is part of my, I hope, formula for that. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We know this was an intense episode, and we think it's important to just spend some time thinking about where we are a year out from what was really a historic moment of shame in our country. We hope this episode was helpful to you as as you process this time. We'll be back in your ears on Friday with you on Instagram, Patreon, Twitter, between now and then. Have the best week available. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. David McWilliams. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Karen True, Amy Whited, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.
To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics.